Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. It is my pleasure today to be talking to our oldest, most regular guest on the show. He is, of course, Michael Hampton, also known as Dr. Bub. He is the founder and main administrator of the website GlobalEdgeInvestors.com. Mike, uh, hello, how are you doing? I'm very well, Dad. Now, I was interested to see you uh, writing recently that you are looking to buy physical gold. You've never been as much of a... While you've always liked gold stocks and you've appreciated the, the underlying fundamentals of gold, you've never been a buyer of physical gold uh, in the way that other gold bugs have. You've uh, preferred gold stocks and uh, options. Why, why are you suddenly looking to buy physical gold? What, what are your thoughts there? Well, two reasons, really. I mean, one... I think the value of gold as an insurance policy is increasing as we head into 2010 and 2011 and the economic scenario that's potentially going to be playing out here. And the second reason is the charts. Um, I'm expecting uh, a sort of interesting buying window coming up, possibly very soon. Uh, and that has to do with the relative position of gold versus stocks. And what I'm hoping to see here is a signal to get, uh, you know, in a major position going in gold would be a relative strength in gold versus stocks. You can look at a ratio of the gold, of the gold price to the S&P as a sign that uh, that uh, strength is occurring. It hasn't really started yet, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of anticipating a change in the trend of that chart, which the last few weeks... Actually, gold has been weaker than stocks, but I'm expecting that to stabilize and then begin to show relative strength. And that might be a sign, a good sign to start buying gold. In my mind, if that were to happen, it would be a major, major change in trend. Now, why do I say that? Because the pattern of the last few years has, has basically been for the dollar to rise and all other assets to fall and vice versa, all other assets to rise, including gold and uh, the dollar to fall. Now, you would expect gold to be doing what the dollar has done, but it hasn't. It's been the dollar that's been doing that. Were this change in trend to take place, gold would finally be fulfilling its role as insurance. Um, you know, the old Wall Street saying, put 10% of your net worth in gold and hope it doesn't go up. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it, w w that, that would be a major change in trend, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I will put a chart up on the thread relating to this conversation. And what that chart will show is it will show a ratio of gold to the S&P, and it will show that gold outperformed the S&P as gold headed up to 1,200 plus where it was in uh, December. And since then, gold has underperformed the S&P. It's dropped more. Um, so what I'm hoping and expecting to see is that it will flatten out and then actually gold will begin to rise in relation to the S&P. And uh, what we might be seeing individually is we might be seeing a falling S&P market in a flat or rising gold price. 
Okay. Now, if we don't see that, if gold continues to underperform, yes, the stocks, then I won't be buying gold in a major way. I'll, I'll be uh, picking up minor amounts of gold. I've started to do that already. Um, and I'll also be watching gold stocks versus the S&P because I, I regard gold stocks as being sitting somewhere between uh, gold and the S&P. And uh, it'll be interesting to see whether they're behaving more like gold or more like stocks. But the best scenario for us is gold uh, bulls would be to see uh, gold outperforming stocks and gold stocks outperforming stocks. Yeah, I mean, the, the scenario where stocks are falling and gold stocks are rising, I see as pretty unlikely. Even in the 1930s, a lot of people look to the 1930s to see what gold stocks could do now. But the big rise in gold stocks came in an environment of rising stocks. You know, a good performance in gold stocks is a bit of a fundamental one, where because the gold price is pretty high now um, and um, expenses are, have you know, are lower than they were some time ago, partly because of lower oil prices. Oil is lower than it was in 2008 when it hit 146. That mm-hmm. actually the gold stocks, some of them are actually making pretty good money right now and pretty good cash flow. Mm-hmm. So that might be one of the few sectors of the economy where companies are actually making good money and generating some pretty good profits. And that would allow gold stocks to perform in line with gold rather than in line with falling stocks. I had dinner the other night with one of the uh, uh, major gold players at HSBC. and I, I won't mention his name, but he was an extremely interesting gentleman. And I'm desperate to get him on this show. But uh, one of the things he, he was describing in the physical markets, and remember HSBC are buying and selling gold on behalf of you know, countries and central banks and all the rest of it. He said there is major, major demand coming in at 1,050, 1,075, anywhere below 1,100. A lot of, uh, he's getting huge physical demand. And he sees a big flaw there. Well, okay. Well, so what we might see then, and this would be, you know, the kind of sign I'm waiting for to be buying gold in a big way, is we might see another slide in stocks, and we can talk about that in a minute. Um, and while that slide is going on, gold might find itself supported somewhere between 1050 and 1082, which is one of my targets. Now, the stock market, we all know the economic fundamentals are rotten. We all know the house has not been put in order in a way that at least the Austrian economists would like. And yet the stock market keeps on rising, uh, even notorious Elliott Wave bears have uh, are starting to turn bullish. Um it's not doing what it's supposed to. It carries on going up. What are your thoughts there? Tops are harder to call than lows. I mean, we did a pretty good job of calling the low back in March of 2009, and it's proven a lot more difficult, as uh, any regular listener here could tell you, uh, to call the top. And, you know, that's that's normally the case. But what what are we looking for? Why am I looking for continuing to look for a top? The main reason is the rising stock prices are associated with lower volume. And especially recently, we've seen um, the volume has been much weaker on the the way up than it was on the way down. And the second reason is, if you look at sentiment measures, and I'll try to include some charts, uh, the the, the bullish sentiment now is very high, and it's at the sort of levels which uh, are indicative of tops and maybe important tops. So those two things, I mean, are are pointing towards lower stock prices. 
you know, if you only look at the chart, you're not, you're not getting, sorry, if you're only looking at the price action, you're not getting all the information uh, that you can get. You have to look at these other measures of volume and sentiment. And those two are pointing down. There are two ways of looking at that price action. One is that we're doing a double top at about 1150 on the S&P. Uh, mm-hmm. Or the other is that it's uh, formed an inverted head and shoulders, which would be bullish with the head being at about 1050 and the each shoulder being around 1100. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are two well, totally justifiable but contradictory ways of reading that price action. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And that's one of the things that's turned some of the Elliott waivers uh, from bearish to bullish is that they've seen patterns which uh, they thought were, were terminal and they can and the stock's prices continue to rise. Now, most Elliott waivers don't look um, very much beyond the price action. They don't look at volume and they don't look very much at sentiment, um, although Prechter, some of them do, do look at sentiment. Um, now, what's kind of not yet turned to the to the bolt to the bear side is VIX. I'm looking at VIX as I'm speaking to you right now, the volatility index. And I'd like to see that get back over, I don't know, 22 and then back over about 28. And if that happened, that would be a sign that perhaps a major drop is is underway. Uh, one thing I liked seeing in the market today, and as I talk to you, it's Monday morning in New York, and we've been trading for about two or two and a half hours, I suppose. And what we have seen today, which is kind of supporting the bear case, uh, the beginning of a possible slide, is we've seen a breakdown in Google and Apple, which have been two of the leaders of this market. And they've come off with pretty good, I, I don't have the percentages in front of me, but the, the moves down have been pretty good with some decent volume behind them. So it's unusual to see market down on Monday. Most Mondays have been upwards action in the markets. So we're, and we've seen some trend lines broken today as well, which uh, which is something I wanted to see. So we may beginning, be beginning to see uh, a sell-off. Um, there's support around 11, 11.10 uh, on the S&P. And again, support back on the old lows there around 10.50. Um, and so those two levels will have to be taken out if we're going to get something more serious. Let's talk about the four-year cycle, the four-year presidential cycle. Um, I've been doing a bit of research on this, and uh, I've found that in the second year of a presidential term, the probability is that not just the Dow, but also the Nikkei and the FTSE and various other major indices will usually put in a high in the first quarter of the year. What are your thoughts on the uh, four-year presidential cycle? How are, how are um, useful a cycle is it? How do you use it when you're trading? Do you Does it apply here? Well, it usually works. I mean, it's one of the more reliable cycles you can find. Um, and I suppose the fundamental reason for it is that presidents like to get the bad news out of the way early in their term. So if you look at Obama, I mean, Obama has now had a full year and he's in his second year and um, he's going to want to be probably want to be or try to get reelected after his first four year term. So he's going to want to have good news coming into that election, which is still uh, two and a half years away. Um, So the best time for him to get the bad news out of the way is right here. And so... um, you know, the, the party that was in power, which was the Republicans, and they didn't manage to do this very well, but 
they should have had good news going into the election, and then Obama should take the bad news now. Um, now, Obama, of course, was when he when he came into office, was facing one of the worst disasters economically that any president saw since FDR, at least. And uh, so he had to goose the economy, you know, early in his term. He had to sort of turn things from very, very bad to better in 2009. So now he has a little window here uh, between now and 2011 to take some bad news. Uh, and if he doesn't take it now, he might be facing, you know, a Bush-like scenario uh, in 2012 when he wants to be reelected. So um, I don't know to what extent we're going to find that those politics being played out, but uh, this is the point where we should be getting some bad news. And by the way, 2010 is a you know zero decade year and that's often a bad year if you look at the 10 year cycle i think you'll find that the year is ending in zero are usually down years for the market too ah was 1990 a bad year um well i don't know how many years people have looked at but uh i think the year ending in zero um and i think perhaps the year ending in two are the two worst years of the decade cycle i didn't know that that's very interesting Mike, um, what should I do with my money? <laughs> well, um, I'll tell you what's not easy to do. And when something's not easy, often it's the right thing to do, is to hold on to some cash. Um, I mean, I'm finding here in Hong Kong um, that almost everybody wants to put their money into property right now. And uh, the reason is that Interest rates are so incredibly low, and and uh, you can borrow money here in Hong Kong at less than 1%. So when you buy property, your interest cost uh, that you pay through in your mortgage is considerably less than what you would pay to rent the same property. You know, yields here, um, rental yields are in the region of two and a half, three, three and a half percent. So let's call it less than three percent. So you know, interest only is about, you know, one half or one third the cost uh, of of uh, on, on owning as it would be of renting. So it's much cheaper to own than it is to rent. Consequently, everybody's buying property here. And I think that's true to some extent in the UK where the uh, the interest rates aren't quite so low as they are in Hong Kong. But when I look at that, I say, OK, everyone's out there buying property. Do I want to follow them? Or do I want to be a contrarian and sell property? Uh, yeah. So what I'm doing actually is I sold property number eight yesterday, and I've got only two left, and I'm wondering if maybe I ought to hold on to one or two. Um, but, um, you know, I, I want to hold cash when everybody else is trying to get out of cash. Because if things change and interest rates start going up, a lot of the calculations that people are making now are suddenly going to change. And all those people who are buying property and getting out of cash are suddenly going to want to have cash again. So I want to get there ahead of them. This interest rate scenario is insane here in the UK because what's happened is that banks aren't offering the same um, cheap interest rates that obviously the Bank of England is offering. And so you've got this insane situation where loads of people can't get cheap deals on new mortgages but pe a lot of people have got extremely cheap deals on existing mortgages mortgages that were on some kind of tracker rate 
and don't want to jeopardize that deal by moving. Yes. Yes. And uh, so you, I mean, they couldn't have made a more illiquid situation if they tried. And, and, you know, I know property prices are holding up because of the dearth of supply, but there's, there's just so little volume. Yeah, well, that's a bad sign, of course. Um, when the market's going up on light volume, as we were talking about before, that's usually a move you want to fade. You want to take the opposite side of that and bet, it, bet that the market's going to go back down again. And as you, as you know, I've, I've had this forecast that we were going to get a turn in the market around about the end of the year. And I, I think that calls right on. I think we've, you know, we've had two months in a row um, where if you take the non-seasonally adjusted figures – where January and February, the average of uh, Halifax and Nationwide, were down both months. So we've had two months down, and it looks like March could be another month down as well. So the sentiment has turned as well. I, I think the figure came out last week, the end of last week, that the uh, housing mortgage loan approvals were way down for, for March. And that's, that's usually a pretty reliable indicator of the trend of the market. So that's that's an important sign that you know actually the market has turned, and you know what what we'll know for sure the market's turned if we don't get any sort of a spring rally. Uh, we had a very good spring rally which went on from way beyond the spring last year, but uh, if we don't get one this year, um, I think you'll see the slightly bearish sentiment turn into a full-scale panic some, somewhere in the course of this year, and of course that's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting 2010. By the end of the year, we're going to be back into a depression. Now, interest rates, can they, how long can they be artificially suppressed? Mm. Well, there's a good question. Um, it, it was pretty easy to keep rates down up until now. And the reason is that we had some negative months, some months where we actually had negative growth. We had, you know, we had prices going down. And... Most people look at 12-month figures, and they look at year-on-year inflation. So if you've got some months of negative um, inflation, those negative numbers will impact on the year-on-year figures for a total of 12 months, obviously. Uh, now, those negative numbers are dropping out of those year-on-year comparisons. So what's beginning to happen is inflation rates right around the world are beginning to creep up. And what's happened here in China is there's been one of the biggest jumps in year-on-year inflation that we've seen in a long, long time. And I can't remember the exact figure, but it jumped by almost 1%. I think it was uh, it was around 2%, and it's jumped to around 3%. And that just happened. That figure just came out last end of last week. And, 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 and now, this morning, in fact... Um, um, the Chinese prim, premier, Wen Jiabao, uh, was talking about, um, you know, raising, potentially needing to, to tighten credit. And the uh, Chinese market was down, the Hong Kong market was down, and now that spread right around the world today. So, and there's talk of other countries like Malaysia about raising interest rates. Um, so we're beginning to see some real signs that those low rates in fact, I should call them ultra-low rates, might soon be a thing of the past. There was a very good interview, by the way, and I recommend people listen to it, an excellent guy, he's English, called Peter Warburton. Ah, I sat next to him at dinner last week. 
<laughs> well, maybe you know his story. I mean, he, he he's written um, some, a very good book, Debts and Delusion, I think was his masterwork. Yeah. And uh, Jim Puplava has given a very good interview with him. And what his thesis was, and it's worth listening to, is that inflation is going to be higher than expected. Now, most people, if you talk to economists at the major investment banks, uh, commercial banks, they're going to tell you we're not going to have any problem with inflation because of the output gap, that we've got spare capacity in the economy, and because of this spare capacity, um, there's going to be no need for anybody, no ability of anybody to raise prices. But what Peter Warburton says is that those, the way those numbers are calculated, they're very misleading. And it only works when you have spare capacity in the sectors of the economy that, um, that need spare capacity. So the problem we have now, and I'll express this in my words rather than Peter Warburton's words, but the problem we have right now is we've got spare capacity in parts of the economy which, which are dead and are going to stay dead. You know, the automobile industry, the home building industry, and other parts of the economy, I don't know, high tech, I mean, let's, some of the stronger parts of the economy, there is no spare capacity. Um, food production, energy, uh, our areas, for example, where we might not have much spare capacity at all. So we're going to see price increases in those areas. And, um, you know, we're not, we're not going to get any benefit from the spare capacity in, in, uh, in, in the dead sectors of the economy. So we're going to see inflation picking up. Uh, despite the fact that economists will tell you that there's lots of spare capacity, it's, it's in the wrong areas. And that's very consistent with the theme I've been on for at least four or five years, which is that we've gone through a period, 2002 to 2007, where we essentially had a fictitious economy, that interest rates were too low, and parts of the economy that should have not grown were growing, and they were creating malinvestment, which we're now going to have years and years of problems as a result of that malinvestment. The fictitious parts of the economy actually have to die and wither and go away. And, uh, you know, the government's not being, not al been allowing that to happen. It's been trying to bail out and save parts of the economy that don't deserve saving. Now, I mean, you and I actually, before we came on here, I showed you a little picture, and I'm just going to mention it now, and I'll put it up on the thread. And there's a picture of a guy digging a hole, and, uh, you know, around him are about 10 other guys who, um, who are watching him dig the hole. And um, my point, and, and I picked this up from Yelnick's blog, uh, is that we, we've basically got um, parts of the economy which are not productive. And a lot of non-productive jobs are being saved. Whereas the poor people who are productive are having to carry lots of workers around them. So in, in this picture, we've got Jose digging a hole, and next to him is a human resources manager sitting on his on something. And we've got a marketing manager, a logistics manager, communications manager, security manager, IT manager, project manager, internal supervisor, PR manager, and product development manager all sort of standing around and watching him work. Well, that's kind of what's happened to the economy well, now. The, 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 the difference is, that the, the, I like that picture, but the problem with that picture is they are all in some way involved in a company that does something. What they should all be is some kind of regulators or, you know, community support officers or something, checking is digging the hole properly. I, um, uh, I was cycling to uh, It's a wonderful picture, though. I, I love it. But I, I was cycling to work the other day, um, and I was just cycling near Victoria Station in... in uh, 
on Ebury Street, uh, for those of you that know London, and the road is up in Ebury Street, so mm. you have to go onto the pavement, and there's a little ramp up onto the pavement, uh, and then um, a sign that says cyclists dismount, and uh, you kind of go round the pavement and walk round the, the roadworks and then get on your bike and get back on the other side. Now, mm. I came... The, the, it, this this was I was on my way to work and I, I when you're cycling you keep your momentum so I kind of went up the ramp onto the pavement and then I was just in the course of skipping off my bike I was doing literally not even walking pace two miles an hour and there was a community support officer in the kind of stood in the recess by a door hidden mm. and he walked out mm. and he was clearly hiding uh, mm. there to catch cyclists walked out jumped and without giving me a moment to speak just said right you're getting a thirty pound fine. And uh, mm. I couldn't. And normally, I'm quite good at you know, kind of talking my way out of this situation. But I, I, I was so cross, I, I didn't even say anything. And um, so he then spent the next twenty minutes filling out a form for me to pay mm. my thirty pound fine. And while he was doing that, I looked around and I noticed it, on all four corners there was a community mm. support officer there nicking cyclists. And in addition, there were two other community support officers walking between the four on the corner. So that was six community support officers there. Now. How is that supporting the community when they're nicking somebody who's in the course of getting off his bike anyway? And um, and I thought to myself, this is the economic cycle at work. And I know when cyclists tear down the pavement, like, you know, cycle careers and so on, it is insane and it's very dangerous. But you have to use your common sense. If somebody's slowing out up after he's just come onto the pavement and there are no pedestrians around anyway, then, you know, you yeah. have to use your judgment anyway. But the economic cycle at work there was I was going to work in order to earn the money to pay the tax mm. which pays for his job so that he can <laughs> yeah. stand on the street corner and give me a £30 fine that further bol bol bolsters the coffers of, of the organisation which he works for. It's just it's a classic example of, of sucking those that actually produce something dry in order to pay for people that don't produce anything. And I left with the parting words of that that £30 fine, that's your day's wages paid for. <laughs> well, yes. And, you know, he, this, this is the funny thing about these titles, isn't it? I mean, he's called a community support officer. But what is he actually doing? He's draining the community. So Absolutely. You know, it's exactly what's... And the, the idea behind, the, behind community support is that it would offer... Um, people more protection against this so-called crime wave that's taking place in London and they're not doing any <laughs> such thing how many community support officers have, have, have caught a, a mugger in action or anything like that all they're doing is 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 leeching money off those people that for the most part behave according to the rules well I mean sure because because he can't catch muggers and really do anything useful about the crime rate he's kind of left with the uh, the idea of nicking cyclists for these minor infractions. I mean, that's all that he can actually do. And he thinks he's had a productive day because he's caught 10 cyclists or whatever it is. But um, the net effect is that, that no one's better off. Everyone's worse off. Absolutely. And those and, those and are exactly the type of jobs that that are so common in, in, in the economy. And, in fact, with this picture, I'm just going to What a waste of a life, to, though. You've only got one life. What a waste of a yes. life standing in a recess of a door trying to catch cyclists and give them a thirty pound fine. I mean, does that? Do you but, think when he when he grew up in his teenage, when I grow up, this is what I want to do? 
You know, I've got a whole world. I've got. I can <laughs> climb Mount Everest. I can see the Victoria Falls. I can go walking in the Serengeti. I can. I can build bridges. I can build. No, what I want to do is standing in a, in a recess in a door and nick cyclists. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but he, he probably knows that there aren't any. He's probably not very well set up, to, prepared to do any really useful job. I mean, only <laughs> only poor Jose there can drink. Can actually. Dig the hole. The other guys could Community too, support but, uh, officer Nolan, if you're listening, take heed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, things are turning, though, in the States, and I'm, I'm wondering when they're going to turn in the UK. I mean, this is a comment from the Yelnick blog. They talk about things like the average pay in Orange County, California, for firemen is $175,000, and that allows retirement. 90% of the final year's pay for life... Um, and not only for his life, but for his or her spouse. That's insane. And then 82, that is insane. 82, yeah, and 82% of the chief-level highway patrol officers discover a disabling injury about a year before they retire, which gives them extra benefits, okay? <laughs> and then <laughs> teachers and police get shielded from dismissal uh, to the point where the school districts can't even re- remove people who are misbehaving. Are one like uh, that. I, uh, sorry, Mike, just to interrupt you very quickly. I don't know if you've heard there's been this awful story that's been here in the UK about this man who's fathered, I think, nine illegitimate children with his own daughter or with his oh own gosh. daughters. And Terrible. there were over 100 so-called professionals working for the government who oh. saw what going went what went on and none of them did anything and not one of them not even have they not one of them lost their job they haven't even been rebuked mm. it, it's well, insane the, these they were there to regulators to stop that kind of thing going on and none of them have done anything it's madness and and not one job lost because of it now, how, how is that delivering a service? And, and that's all come out of the taxpayer's pocket. I, I'm sounding a bit like some crazy right-winger, but, but uh, you kind of do start to feel that way. Well, actually, it's, it's true what you say, and it's not only true about community support officers and uh, people who are meant to be looking after, uh, you know, uh, the children and so forth, but look, at, look what happened in, in the financial sector. I mean, there are actually plenty of laws in place and regulations in place that were ignored. And people from Greenspan to uh, regulators in the SEC to uh, uh, Federal Reserve bankers who simply didn't do their job. And we had a severe financial crash, which I think is not over. And how many of these people who failed to do their jobs were in any way held, held accountable for their failure to do it? No one was. And frankly, this makes me very angry, and I can get really pretty livid about it. A free market yeah, would it, hold it, them accountable, it, wouldn't it? it? It would, and it should. Because they would go bankrupt. <laughs> well, in, 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 instead of bailing out, uh, well, I don't know if we should be bailing anybody out, but we've been bailing out people who really didn't deserve it. And how many of the senior bankers of these organizations that, that needed money and went bust and were taken over by the government – how many of them lost their jobs? Very, very few indeed. Most of them walked away with huge pensions. So here we are, basically, the poor taxpayers, who the responsible people, and many of them are making you know, relatively modest amounts of money. They're being asked to pay taxes to support people who have failed to do their jobs. 
it's really shameful and disgusting. And, you know, I think that what's happening now in America is in, it will happen in Britain. I'm sure it will eventually. And it must be happening in a quiet way already. Um, is people will begin to see and, 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 and realize that they must have responsible government and they must force accountability on people. And, you know, the way that's happening in America, I mean, it started with, it was pure anger. You had these things called the Tea Party movement and Tea Party rallies and so forth. But what's happened is the next step, which is funnily enough called the Coffee Party. And uh, the Coffee Party is about people being a little bit more, a little bit less angry and a little bit more directed and, and, and goal-oriented, trying to achieve something better. And I think this movement may be morphing onto something that's, it's actually going to result in some type of an accountability and uh, voters who want to see responsible people in government, responsible people in public office. There's an amazing speech, and again, I'll put this on. The governor of New Jersey went on and basically said, we can't any longer have two worlds, a world of responsible people who are suffering right now and a world of public sector workers of, of fantasy where people make huge salaries and drain the economy and drain the community. It just can't go on anymore. And, you know, I think this isn't just you and me ranting, but it's, it's, it's you know, we're expressing the, the voices and the anger of people we hear around us who are really fed up. Yeah, the financial damage done by the, by the public sector or by people who work in the public sector, and, and uh, it is, is, I'm sure it matches up to the financial damage done by the banking sector last year. But, Mike, I'm, I'm going to have to wind this up because um, I'm being called into dinner. All I would say is that there does seem to be a movement going on in the US, and we need something similar in the UK. But what we lack is leadership. It's a perfect, this country badly needs a leader, and, and I really think David Cameron and the Tories are missing a trick and we need people like Mike Shedlock and Peter Schiff and people you know uh, uh, of that kind of leaning um, making bigger speeches on the media but at the moment it's not happening the only one vaguely we've got like that is Boris Johnson um, and of course Vince Cable and and you and and how about Mr. Hannon, who's in the uh, uh, well, yeah, but but uh, he's kind of uh, you know what's happened to Daniel Hannon? Nobody's seen or heard from him for ages. But you're absolutely right. But uh, anyway, Mike, the 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 website is globaledgeinvestors.com. We'll post a, a link from the show to a thread there. And uh, and uh, Mike, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. And we'll come on again in a few weeks. It's been too long since we last spoke, but come on and talk in a few weeks. Um, and hopefully we'll get this uh, uh, long-awaited correction. In the meantime, Mike, thanks very much. And I wish you all the best. Enjoy your dinner. It's been a great pleasure. I enjoyed it. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 